From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set, a podcast that explores the field's latest innovations with the pioneers at its cutting edge. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. Thank you for joining us. On August 23rd, a black man named Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by police in front of his three sons in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's just a short ways from where I'm recording this, in the guest bedroom of my picture-perfect neighborhood in Madison. You'd never guess, looking out my window, that there's a crisis of racial justice and social equity in America. And, of course, that's a big part of the problem. Right now on the surgery set, we're in the middle of a three-part series about how we transport patients. But we need to break into our regularly scheduled program for another reminder of the importance of facing, recognizing, and fixing a bigger problem in medicine than how we move our sickest patients around. We'll be back later this week with Tom Brazelton to talk about transporting children. But today, we're going to talk to three UW Department of Surgery residents, and they're going to help guide our next steps as we do the work to eradicate systemic racism from our hospitals and our society. In the aftermath of a global pandemic, we need to be sure that the new normal we return to is not one of inequality, racism, and bias. We need to realize a structure that makes sure that everyone is given access to opportunities, such as working in medicine. This may be the first time you hear the voices of UW surgery residents Callistus Dita, Betty Allen, and Patrick Lee, but it won't be the last. These are the future leaders of surgery and I was enormously privileged to talk to them about their journeys to UW and what they're doing to pave the way for a new generation of surgeons who look like the patients they serve. Betty, Patrick, and Callistus, it is such a pleasure to have you joining us on the surgery set. It is not an easy job, I know, as a resident to find uh, time to do anything, so I am honored that you have uh, chosen to take a few of your precious spare moments to, uh, to join us here. Callistus has been on before talking about uh, some work he's done in Ethiopia. Betty and Patrick, I think this is your, your first time through with us, hopefully not the last. As, as we've talked about a little bit already, I feel as though I'm not the right person to be telling the story of what's going on in our society or, or in surgery right now as regards to racism and bias. I've been very fortunate and just lucky to not have had to experience a lot of that in my own time. And and I don't think I'm I'm the right person to really tell the story of, of where we are, where we're going, what we need to be doing. So I'm thrilled to be uh, turning the show over to your voices to sort of tell us about where where we are, where we're going, and, and most importantly, like what we uh, can all do to be allies in the effort to create an equitable society writ large and also, you know, in our own profession of surgery and in medicine in general. So with that, I'm thrilled to turn, turn things over to you and uh, I'll, I'll pipe up here and there maybe if, uh, if I've got questions, but really um, I want to just hear, hear your stories. Betty, maybe we start with, uh, start with you. Yeah, so I'll give a brief little intro about myself and to give everyone my perspective. So um, again, my name is Betty Allen. Um, I am from the south suburbs of Chicago called Harvey, Illinois. Um, I'm one of seven children of a single mother. And um, I grew up in a small town that's very impoverished and 
I didn't have any um, doctors in my family or role models, so seeking out and trying to discover the journey of becoming a physician has definitely been a challenge for me, but it definitely has been worth it. And Patrick? Thanks. It's uh, definitely a pleasure to be on uh, the surgery set. But I'm Patrick Lee. I am originally from Chicago, born and raised on the South Side. Did my undergrad at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign before coming here to Madison where I did my MD and my PhD. Happy to be a fourth-year resident in the program currently. I am the, the youngest of four siblings from my, my mother and my father and spent most of my time growing up on the south side of Chicago. I Like Betty, I also did not have any physicians in my family, so definitely found out that pathway and the road towards becoming a physician and becoming a surgeon with the help of friends and uh, other mentors, but definitely made the right career path and happy to be uh, progressing uh, in my training. And Callistus, you guys all have uh, like, these remarkable tales of, of getting here, but I think Callistus has come the furthest, <laughs> at least uh, geographically. Uh, I, that's objectively true. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm Callistus. Uh, I'm one of the video uh, residents here. Thanks for having me on here again. I've, I've been on before and I particularly uh, enjoyed this medium. I'm originally from Cameroon, where I was actually born and raised until after uh, high school. I think I sort of bring a, a different perspective to this. I come from a very large family. I'm one of eight children. Even though neither of my parents were ever in the medical field, somehow four of their children went on to become physicians. I, I can't really say I didn't have role models because some of, some of those are my older brothers. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to be able to you know, maybe touch on that in a little bit as we get deep into the podcast of, of how I think, you know, maybe growing up outside of uh, America and all whatnot, just some of the uh, educations that uh, that brings. But anyhow, I come here by way of Minnesota, where I started on a grad and then finished in the UK, uh, spent some time in Ann Arbor for grad school uh, before ending up here. I guess, you know, just to, to start things off, recently, I think, we, you know, a lot of our eyes were opened to the degree of social injustice and racial injustice that exists in our country and in medicine. And I, I spoke recently with Dr. Germa Sefera, who's one of our vascular surgeons about this in, in the previous episode of the podcast. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was for people who have been experiencing systemic racism, and, you know, racism targeted at them specifically and at, you know, the systems in which they work. Like, this is, none of this is news, right? Like, the fact that, like, all of this is a, has sort of emerged into the, like, broader public consciousness is maybe new, but, like, for people who've been living in this, that, like, it's, it is not news that, like, we live in a society with a, with a racism problem. All three of you have spoken eloquently about this in other forums, but maybe, like, can we talk about that? Like, talk about how have recent events changed the way that, that you perceive the problem? And what are we learning? What, what, uh, what lessons have you learned? What lessons have you watched others around you learning for the first time that, you know, you've known and been trying to tell us all this time? And, um, and maybe now people are starting to sort of recognize on a level that is beginning to approach the level that it needs to be recognized. Dr. Cole, yes, you're right. You know, we have seen 
instances of police brutality and racism countless times. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the broader public only sees it because, uh, because it's captured on someone's phone. Um, you know, we hear of things that happen, sort of like the death of George Floyd um, in our own communities and neighborhoods. So, unfortunately, it was not a surprise to us. I'll be honest, what is, what is surprising to me is the amount of protesters and the diversity of the protesters, you know, after the death of George Floyd. And that has really made me hopeful because prior to that, I was not very hopeful that things would change as fast as they are now. I think, but because of the death of George Floyd and the fact that it was so apparent that this was an innocent man who was killed for no reason and that everyone saw that, it really opened the eyes to everyone. And um, I think that really lit the fire in people's hearts to learn more about racism, learn more about systemic oppression of people of color in the housing market, in the economic sector, and communities and policing, including in medicine as well. So again, I think this time things, uh, things are gonna be different. I think I, I, I would really agree to that point uh, that, um, that Betty is making. I, I think what's really become very obvious in these discussions uh, now is that I, I think a lot of people do recognize that we have a problem. Uh, that's that's no question. I think the question of racial suppression, racial injustice, uh, I, I think almost certainly, uh, you know, the majority of the population agrees that we have an issue here that needs to be fixed. And this sort of highlights uh, sort of like a different principle that you, you kind of see in all the facets is when you allow, you know, guidelines dictate what people do. Uh, when you allow a system that was supposed to, you know, to be developed to help people operate in a smoother fashion, when you allow that system to overstep its boundaries and dictate what people do in their daily lives, and now it's sort of like having a virus take over that people don't know what to do about it. This is a system that's ravaging us, and everyone is all of a sudden caught up and asking, how did we, how did we get here? How was this system designed? Like, and, you know, this is something that started more than, what, 400 years ago, right? Uh, and now you don't see individuals that have an issue with being racist. You don't see individuals uh, who are even right out the racist, but it's the system. One thing that I can tell you this, the officer who killed George Floyd could have been black and my position would not have changed yeah. about all of this. Because what allowed that officer to do what he did wasn't necessarily the fact that he was white and George Floyd was black. It's more about the system, how the system designed the officer to operate. And, and so we really have to get behind that system and ask ourselves, how do we change that? How do we change this and come up with an objective way of measuring that change to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable? Uh, is really how I see it. And I can go you know, in depth a little bit more into this, but that's kind of how I see it. It's a systems issue. It's not a police issue. You know, even a, a young black family that's sitting in front of a loan officer trying to acquire their first house, right? 
their loan officer looks at them for whatever reason and say, you know, I don't believe they're going to pay this loan back and doesn't offer them the loan. That's a missed opportunity. And that same incident is not different from what police officers are doing on the streets. And it's not even a call or issue anymore. It's a, it's a, this is a system issue. The George Floyd incident happened during COVID times where things you know, slowed down for everybody. And it wasn't that you know, people were able to get back to their daily lives. If you think back to Philando Castile in Minnesota, uh, he, was, he did everything by the book. He told the police officer that he had a firearm on him. The police officer gave him an order. He did what the police officer told him to do, and he was shot in front of his daughter. But uh, I think the difference between George Floyd and Philando Castile is that with COVID, a lot of people slowed down. It wasn't back to, to ordinary business. Uh, a lot of people, a lot more people were listening to the complaints and the plight of, of what's happened. And, uh, and as Betty and Callistus have mentioned, are going through life with this systemic racism. You know, sometimes it's it's hard to, to put a finger exactly on what kind of practices are being uh, in, are in place. Uh, other times it's it's pretty easy. But growing up in the system, it's unfortunate and it's sad to say that you get used to it. Sometimes your first thought is to expect to be put down by the system, but then you know it's surprising when you know, that's not the case. I think that being college educated and then moving on into a very prestigious field gives us a little bit of an advantage, but compared to the people that aren't on the same pathways that don't have the same educational opportunities, it's a lot more challenging. For some of those that don't have those educational opportunities, you have to ask yourself, how do they get out of the situations that they're in when they're not afraid afforded the same opportunities for escape? And it's just, it just becomes a vicious cycle. So, uh, you know, COVID has been an unfortunate thing, but it's also, like I say, allowed people to just listen to some of the things that have been going on, not only with George Floyd, but also with the health disparities and within COVID. It's, it's a thing of, of people listening, and then we need to turn the listening into action and continued action. We can't just let it fall to the wayside like some of these others have in the past. I mean, obviously, all three of you have these remarkable stories, all of which I'm, I think would take, you know, we could make a series of the podcast just on how do you go from being, you know, born in Cameroon or, you know, born in a, a family with no history of physicians or advanced degrees, and, and how do you find your way into these positions? Obviously, it's because you're all exceptional individuals with remarkable talent who have like managed to, to navigate a system that is not designed to put you where you are today. You know, I think my, in my own experience, I, I was born into a system that is designed to put me into where I am today. There was never any like particular roadblocks between me being born and me becoming a pediatric surgeon at an academic medical center, right? Like there was, it was always very obvious how it's, how it was done. And you guys have, have created paths that I can only imagine. Um, and, and which I think are all remarkable stories. And now you find yourselves members of a profession that is extremely well regarded in society, which affords us all sort of certain benefits as, you know, physicians, we are trusted, we do have more of a voice than sort of the average person. And I guess that sort of gets me into mind of, of what one thing I've seen in the protests, which is I felt like there was a real change once we started seeing police brutality against the protesters. 
and particularly when the protesters were not all black, right? You know, when you started seeing police brutality against white reporters, it became like the story shifted. Um, And it became, you know, oh, you know, they're beating up on these people and it's people of privilege. It's white people. It's like professionals. It's, um, you know, as if there's like, it's okay, you know, from a societal, from the sort of narrative of society. It's like, well, you know, if they're beating up on black protesters, like that's just the nature of things. But if they're beating up on doctors or they're beating up on, you know, white people or they're beating up on moms, um, then it's, it's, it it, it crosses some lines and opens some eyes. And then, you know, you, you bring up a really, really um, exceptional point because you, you, like you said, the dynamic shifted. And just like Clissa says, p- people aren't thinking of, you know, individuals are being mistreated, that there is a systemic problem and that system can be directed towards anyone, actually, you know, that prevents that system from functioning in the way that it was designed. So that really, again, just enlightened people. So like you and even other uh, minorities that, you know, that there is policies and positions and people in place that want to keep certain, you know, groups suppressed. The, the protesters and the, the, the protesting really showed that, you know, this didn't just happen in the United States. There were protests all over the world, Germany, several countries in Africa, and other places in Europe, that there were Black Lives Matter protests, you know, globally. So I think it really showed people that, you know, how important systems are and that we have to really think about what thoughts and what ideas and ideologies that people are attributing to to create certain institutions and groups and organizations. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Betty. I, I think also an, another thing that I'm interested in seeing, and you raised two good points there, is uh, and, and now we've recognized the problem, uh, what's next, right? Because the next you know, few months and years uh, can't be that we want our lives to return to normal. No, I don't want this to return to normal. Right. Because what does that normal mean for someone like me? That means going back to, you know, racial suppression, you know, all the injustices that I have felt throughout my time in America. And I don't want that normal. If that's normal, I don't want to go back to it. I, I, I want to remain, quote unquote, rage. I want to remain in my rage if that's what it's going to take, because going back to normal is also not an option. So, you know, you look at this and I say, I, I want institutions, I want the leaders of institutions to come up with the real objective measures of how they can identify and say we're, make, we're taking steps towards limiting this. I'll take Wisconsin for an example, not to make a story out of this, but I think it's a place that I know the most, right? You look at a fa- on a faculty level, you ask very directed and pointed questions. How many African-American faculty do we have? If you're not satisfied with that number, then I think you ought to do something to change it. And I mean real results. And you can't stop at saying that it's difficult to recruit. That's not an option. You can't say that. You look at a residency and you ask, how many African-American residents do we have? If you don't like the number, you ought to do something about it. And do that on a consistent basis and hold your staff, 
hold your team members accountable to that. Those are the real changes that we can make. So that we can take this, we can harness this, and change it into something that's actually real. And that process, you know, is the hardest, right? You know, everyone getting boots on the ground and brainstorming ideas of actually how to bring that excitement from the streets into sort of into the boardrooms and and into you know you know to you know at at the table you know that's that's where all the work comes in you know how we get more African American and Latino and Native American you know applicants to the University of Wisconsin how do we hire more faculty of color you know how do we get more students of color in the medical school you know these are all hard questions you know. And, um, and I think it's going to take all of us, you know, people of color who are here and not to really, to help answer, you know, how to answer those questions. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, Betty, I, I think, you know, they asked me, well, I think one of the professors that I serve in the society, it's not just that I'm interested in helping, you know, the population that are left back home. I want to demystify the process of becoming a surgeon in the society yeah. for a lot of African-Americans. Because when you grow up and you hear about the profession of, you know, someone growing up to become a surgeon and there's no one that looks like you that you've ever seen do that, it becomes a mystery. It becomes, it almost becomes like a miracle, something that you have to wonder, is this really true for my race? Uh, uh, This is true. And and Betty, you complete paragon to all the young African-American girls out there will see you in the community and they tell her this is a surgery resident. And she can go home and tell her mom, mom, I want to be like Betty when I grow up. For you growing up, you never had that. I know I I never saw a physician with my eyes until I moved to the United States. When I was a late teenager, I never saw a physician and a physician never took care of me. And the question become, how do you become something that you haven't even seen? So we need to create role models. We need to create pipelines, so to speak. And that's how you create it. You create it by forming this direct route. But someone can sit somewhere and say, there's someone sitting up there who looks like me. I can be this someday. As you guys know, I've been involved in the Student National Medical Association for, mm-hmm. for a decade now. And you'd be surprised to hear um, when I sit down and I talk with some of these undergrads or uh, even some of the medical students, like they say, you are the first black surgery resident that I've met. Uh, and they are interested in the pathway because a lot of these, uh, a lot of these students are coming from predominantly white institutions. Like you say, they don't see people that look like us, but I've heard it over and over. And that organization has been instrumental for lots of students, for that introduction into medicine and that introduction to professionals across various um, fields, you know, you see the look in, in the young folks' eyes when they start to meet you. It's, it's absolutely amazing. But building a pipeline, it's not easy. But, you know, like Calista was saying, you know, something that Wisconsin can start to do, they're doing it in the med school, but we can even think about it from a surgery department, what's our outreach like to the community? What are we doing to put ourselves out there to students that may be at risk that may not have never seen a black surgeon or a surgeon at all to say, hey, these are career paths that are possible for you? You know, I find that there's a question I think about a lot, actually. 
you know, I've always been involved in my community, like with tutoring and like with out of school programs and things like that. But, you know, once we get into medical school and residency now, um, you know, our time is it's not really our own anymore. It, <laughs> it makes you think about how can I stay engaged right, in the communities? How can I continue to make sure that people or students who look like me continue to see me? Because, you know, you know, I don't want to just lock myself up in the hospital and therefore, you know, I, only, I may only see people who look like me, unfortunately, you know, when they, when they, are, when they come into the OR. You know, I want to be still be able to engage with younger students and with high school students and med students to show them that this path to become a surgeon, to become a surgeon is real and it is attainable, you know, despite all of the challenges. Um, you know, before COVID, I was able to speak at Jefferson Middle School, sort of on the west side of Madison, and it was, uh, it was great, you know, I was speaking with seventh and eighth grade students and talk to them about my journey. I was able to show them pictures of my research and, you know, I get to operate on rats and um, take out their heart and lungs and they were just so inspired and so excited. You know, it reminded me how exciting my job is. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's a good question. And I think it's a question we have to continue to ask, you know, as we move forward in our career, you know, how do we stay engaged? You know, we're going to be busy we're going to be, you know, establishing our practice. We're going to be doing research and becoming leaders in that field. But again, as surgeons, you know, how do we continue to stay engaged in our communities to make sure that we are seeing the people and the, um, and the young talent that we need to see? Yeah, I think that's, a, I mean, such a, a noble goal and such a, yeah. At the same time, I, I like I'm so inspired by by you and and all three of you the way that you think not just about you know how do you advance your own careers but how do you advance the careers of you know people who look like you and how do you how do you demonstrate a path? But at the same time, it seems really unfair, right? That like we are asking you to be surgery residents, which is not a straightforward thing. Yeah. I mean, done it myself not that long ago. Like it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a huge amount of energy. We're not in any way lowering our standards for you guys to, to, to be surgery residents. And we're saying like, yeah, and while you're at it, do you mind like creating a pipeline for, you know, other black students um, from elementary school on to uh, go on into the profession of surgery? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we help you guys? Like, it's, it's just not, it's not enough to, it, you know, we can't ask you to be surgery residents and also, you know, save us from ourselves. How do we, how do we help in the profession of, you know, how, do, how does the faculty help? How does the profession of surgery help? How does the profession of medicine help do this without, you know, how do we, without putting all the burden on, you know, the few people of color who are already in the profession to kind of also like fix it in the process. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I can take that on. So I, I think there, there are a few things. Uh, and as you've noticed, the process of even becoming a surgery resident, it's a very systematic, methodical process, mm -hmm. right? It takes time. It's a stepwise approach that starts all the way from middle school. It's almost too difficult to do it on your own if you don't have the right mentorship. And then when you come down to that, is the way you help me, is by giving me partners. I'll tell you that. And how can you create partners? Because the burden 
that, say, for example, you know, Betty, Patrick, and I feel, uh, it's an exorbitant task to ask us to, say, you know, mentor all of Madison, uh, you know, people who want to take a path like this. It's overwhelming because all of them, they want to ask you questions in as much as you want to answer all their questions. You just might not be able to do that. In order to increase the surgery workforce of people of color here, uh, you can't do it overnight. It starts all the way back to reaching out to the middle schools in town, reaching out to the high schools. You will get people here by making them succeed in middle school. And we need to have that message clear. If we also don't have people of color in positions of power here, uh, you know, some of those voices go unheard. How many people of color are on the admissions committee admitting these kids from medical school, from, high, from college into medical school? How many of them sit on the admissions committee here when they're talking about the rank process of bringing residents into surgery or internal medicine and, and all of this? How many of them are on that committee? And if they aren't sitting there, are you, are you absolutely certain that you're representing those views? So I think all of that counts. And even for the medical student who was trying to come here, they're going to ask you, how many attendings do you have who look like me? And if you don't have any, and you're telling them they're going to come here and succeed, they become very skeptical. So I think, you know, to, to sort of answer your question, I think this needs to be a very thought out process, uh, a very directed, intentional mentorship program that we have to create and see how we take these kids stepwise through that program. And I'm going to touch on something here that's very controversial that you probably wish I didn't bring it up in a podcast. But I think the exams that allow students to get into you know, some of these fields, be it be, you know, the ACTs, the MCAT, the STEP exams, I think those exams are very biased. And at best, do not entirely predict who is going to make a good surgeon or a good doctor. They test your ability to take exams. They test your ability to imagine what, you know, the question writers thinking when they write those questions. But I don't really think they have a one-to-one correlation to how good of a physician you're going to be. And unfortunately, time and again, it's been proven that people of color struggle on those exams and they've now been used as an objective way to say that you're not good enough. You can't do this. See, we've tested it and we've proven it to, all, to ourselves. We've also proven it to you that you're not good enough. When, it, when an old white guy sits somewhere and writes a question and you're supposed to answer it by imagining what he's thinking, who do you think is best to understand what an old white guy is, was thinking when he was writing that question? Is it an African-American girl? Yeah, because it's not, actually, that's not very controversial. So um, I work with a pre-doctorate um, master's student in my lab, and she is applying to med school for the next, yeah, for the next year. And right now, I'll tell you, not only are the exams biased, but the, just the financial burden of the application process now, you know, it's completely different from when we were applying. You know, the amount of secondaries that cost $120 each, that they have to do, um, you know, also adds, you know, stress to students of color, you know, one, 
who may not have the best test scores, but also may not can't afford, you know, um, just the totality of the application process. So I, you know, is you know, I think it's that and everything about you know the path to get to medicine it has so many unnecessary hurdles that even before people get to the door, they're already turned away. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's definitely problematic, and you know, in addition to just the uh, the application process itself, and how many of our, our colleagues have been able to afford like uh, MCAT prep course, yeah. and then you know, even going back to, to undergrad, I think about counseling. You know, sometimes it's just set up for for people to, to fail. Like, I think about our our chemistry course, which was notorious on campus for being one of those. Uh, uh, we took a, a chemistry like placement exam prior to getting our course. And I, I mean, I remember my score it was like a 17 out of 38 or something like, like that. Like I hadn't taken chemistry since my sophomore year of high school. So there was a lot of stuff that I had forgotten. I remember going to my admissions and um, she said, oh, you're probably in, in general chemistry one. And I, I thought to myself, part of my says to you, I'm going to be fine in general chemistry one. Right. My, my goal is to, to get to med school. I'm not trying to be in a weed out course and, you know, fall off the chopping block. But there are plenty of my friends that did not, you know, they followed the advice of their advisor, went into that course and just did horribly. It's hard as a freshman when you start off like that in your science classes to continue on. Um, some people have the perseverance and make it through, but if you start off like that, it makes it very difficult to, to recover. And then after a couple of semesters, you have the same advisors talk, well, maybe you should think about a different career path. Maybe medicine might not be the, the path for you. Um, and then they give up that whole medicine and, and do something else. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that, uh, uh, Patrick. <laughs> People are set up to fail. You know, there, there's this, there's this concept of you know, like, like a confirmation bias, right? We, people of color, when I step into into these new scenarios, it's like I approach it with some level of anxiety. It's like, you know, am I am I good enough? Yeah. Uh, am I am I am I even supposed to be here? Uh, I look around and I don't see anyone that looks like me and I go, well, they must have made a mistake. Why am I here? And then in, in, in the middle of that, all of a sudden, you give me a test and then you tell me that I have failed. What, I, what immediately sets up in my head is to try again and see whether you succeed. No, when I see that I've failed, I go, oh, this is a confirmation. This is a confirmation that I shouldn't be here. I might as well just step out now. And that's not the message we want to be sending to people, right? And if you already have a test that the accuracy or the predictability of how you're going to perform is questionable, and then you're using that test to beat down on, you know, on this class, uh, that for unrelated reasons, they don't really do well on it. That's not mentorship. That's, that, that's to, that to me, it's a system that's been designed and allowed to go and check for so long and it's, and it's damaging us. And if we're really talking about creating change, inviting people of color into medicine or into professions uh, that are regarded on an equal pedestal, those are the kind of things that we need to be looking at, at, at changing. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's like in one hand we we know there's a problem. We say you know we need more faculty of color. We need more residents of color. But on the other hand, we there's all these hurdles in the pathway for us to even get into. So it's like you you can't you know build a brick wall if you don't have tools. So it's it's you know it's the same thing. You know, you know we we talk about racial injustice and medicine and in this profession we have to go all the way back to our students and look at why are so many of us you know one not making it and two why are some not applying to you know a lot of our programs you know it starts from that it starts from the perception of how programs are perceived it starts from you know why are there so many especially black men who are in med school why are so many black men are in our surgery or medicine programs so, you know, it, it goes all the way back to that. Like you said, it's, it's a system that a lot more people are, you know, awakening up to this environment that we are, we're all are in and know that we all have a voice and a position to change it. What's been really reinforced to me as someone, you know, a few years past you guys in this process is that it is, it is just not enough to say, like, I personally... I'm really devoted to like, you know, committed to trying to be as little of a racist as possible. Right. Like I want to, I want to try to like not be a racist. Like that's, that's a good, probably a good thing to be right. Don't be a racist, but it's not enough. Right. You have to like look at the system. And, um, and one of the things I took away from like talking with um, Gurma Tafera was, you know, he's like, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you look like his, he gets ratings of his, the cleanliness of the exam rooms when he is in clinic is lower than when his like white partner is using the same room as he is at the same time. Like when they're flipping back and forth, right? It's in everything. And so it's not enough to sort of say, I'm going to try to not be a racist. It has to be like, I'm going to like upend this system to like root all of the sort of systemic biases out. Yeah. It seems like an overwhelming task, but like, I mean, obviously you guys are sort of like helping me understand like there's some pretty concrete things that we could do to start, right? Like you have to take the first steps. You're not going to fix it overnight. It's 400 years old. Like it's got to be dismantled slowly, but there are some, there's some low hanging fruit to like completely mix my metaphors. Exactly. And you know, um, you know, I'm really glad that the university of Wisconsin, our Sunday department has really taken bold steps and trying to do that, trying to have actionable items and like with having a new chief diversity officer, having a you know, diversity task force um, to really want to say publicly that we are promoting and celebrating our diverse faculty and staff members to let you know patients know who coming from all over the state and other parts of the country that we have diverse residents who are an important part of our of our community um, therefore you will see them they are here I think those are all important steps to let people know that University of Wisconsin embraces diversity in all aspects of the hospital of the hospital so you know I'm really excited that you know our new CDO has done this and you know I'm really just in the near future this is this is so invigorating because you know you, you love these things Glad we're all thinking like this. So, I mean, Dr. Cole, as an individual, what can you do about all of this? So, not about just saying you don't want to be racist. Say that these are the things 
that I'm going to do to show that I'm not racist. I am going to go to a middle school somewhere in the inner city, you know, south side of Chicago, whatever, you name it, right? I will take a kid that was interested in medicine or who is simply interested in graduating high school and does not have a family member who has ever done that. I will pour my heart into this and see this kid graduate from high school or graduate, you know, and go to college. And if that, if the next steps become medical school, if you can do that, that's concrete. I want you to send an email to your chair, ask them questions. Oh, I noticed that, you know, we only have, I'm just throwing a number out there. You know, 10% of our, of our residents are African-Americans. Is there a reason why there's such a discrepancy between what the population reflects and what we have in the residency program? Have you recognized this problem? What are you doing to solve it? Just ask those three questions and see what the response is. And if she gets, you know, if he or she gets that email day after day from multiple people, they're going to have to address it. They're going to have to look into it and say, well, you know what? Everyone is talking about this. This is important. So how do we fix it, right? I, I, when I look at Betty uh, and Patrick, I, I have a whole different level of respect for them. Uh, I, and I'll tell you why. They grew up in America. I was never born here. Okay, they grew up in America where racism to me is a culture and not something that someone makes an active effort to do. And yet, we sit in the same room here. Uh, I had the privilege of being born in Cameroon, where I never experienced racism. You know, when I grew up, I knew that education was the norm. I knew that I was going to go to school. I knew I was going to be successful. And I knew that if I studied hard, I will do whatever I wanted to do. Like, that's, that's the mindset that I grew up with. I knew that if I failed, all I had to do was try harder and I will succeed the next time. Until I got to America, and thank God I had a very solid foundation by the time I got to this country. But when you take a two-year-old who's just been introduced into society and you teach them all these things about themselves, like, it becomes very difficult to break out of that. It becomes a culture, and you don't change a culture overnight. You don't even have to teach a kid that they are not good anymore. They just grow up believing it, and that's a very difficult problem. So this, this thing is not going to get solved overnight. Uh, we, we're going to have to put in a lot of work. You know, these are some of the things that we can do, but it's going to take a long time. But here are clear steps that we can take to limit it. I think that's, I mean, so, so fantastic. And I just want to thank all of you, uh, all three of you for, for taking the time, for being here. Hearing your voices is so important. And I know that making time to, to have your voices heard on top of everything else that you have to do is, is a real commitment on your part for which, uh, you know, there is no immediate payoff, but I think, I think the payoff in lifetimes is going to be enormous, not both because you are all going to go off and become physicians who are going to save people's lives left and right, but also because you're going to serve as an inspiration for the next generation of people who are going to come up and do it and hopefully have a slightly easier time of it. And, the people behind them a slightly easier time still. And I am completely inspired by, um, by the work that you're doing. And uh, I hope that I can be a help to you and, and be a, an ally in this process um, in my own right. But you know, I, I need your leadership to do it. So I really appreciate everything you're doing and showing all of us a way to, to, to help.
No, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. I think this is a great step and just giving us a platform to be able to just use our voices and share our perspectives. And I just hope that it educates um, some and inspires others. Uh, definitely. Thank you for having us on. Uh, I'm glad that we do have the opportunity to do this. Yeah. Well, we, um, I'm very hopeful that this is not the last time that we have you on. Um, anytime <laughs> you, you've got uh, something to share or um, want to uh, address our listenership, who I think are a, a cool group of people across the country and the world, um, you are welcome. This megaphone is yours anytime. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to Callistus Detop, Betty Allen, and Patrick Lee for their insight and leadership during this crucial moment. We at The Surgery Set are committed to sharing our platform with communities of color who need to be heard. I encourage you to keep watching, keep thinking critically, and keep acting to change the undeniably racist systems that we have in America. The work that needs to be done won't yield the necessary results overnight, but it is work that must be done nonetheless. Every journey is a long series of steps, and many of us and the systems we live and work in are way further behind on this path than we need to be. We'll be back with our final installment of our transport series in a few days. Until then, stay safe, look out for your neighbors, and please register to vote. Talk to you soon. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Invite your friends to listen in, and if you're feeling generous, please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It really makes a huge difference. Thanks. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by J.P. Swenson. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like, and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at The Surgery Set, thank you for listening. Thank you.